This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Welcome back to From the Top, where outstanding young musicians come to play. I'm your host, pianist Peter Dugan. It's so great to be with all of you this week and every week, thanks to the generosity of Susan and Gerald Slavitt. In case you're just joining us, we're coming to you from the studios of Minnesota Public Radio, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. The Twin Cities are home to so many important classical music schools, including the McPhail Center for Music, one of our nation's oldest and largest community-based music education organizations. The St. Paul Conservatory of Music is here, and the Mankato Area Youth Symphony Orchestra, among many others. While our next young musician lives in St. Cloud, Minnesota, she happily drives or takes the ride an hour into Minneapolis to be part of her youth orchestra every Friday, and then an hour there and back again on Saturdays for her quartet rehearsals. Here's 14-year-old violinist Lorelai Schoenhard performing Hungarian Dance Number no. 5 by Johannes Brahms with me, Peter Dugan, at the piano. Hey! Hi, Peter. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to be on here. What are we going to be performing together? We're going to be playing Brahms' Hungarian Dance Number no. 5. This is a timeless classic. Whenever you're ready, let's take it from the top. Let's go. Thank you. 
14-year-old violinist Lorelai Schoenhard from St. Cloud, Minnesota, performed Hungarian Dance Number no. 5 by Johannes Brahms with me, Peter Dugan, at the piano. Lorelai, bravo, bravo, bravo. That was a great performance. Thanks, Peter. It was really fun to play it with you, too. I mean, just great energy and so playful. What do you love about this piece? I like all the different colors in it, the slow parts that have lots of singing melody lines, and then the fast voce parts, like people dancing and stomping their feet. Do you have an image that goes through your mind when you play it? When I play this piece, I imagine how Brahms actually got inspired to write this, how he was sitting outside of a cafe, listening to gypsy bands and drinking a tankard of beer. So that's kind of what goes through my mind. (laughs) Now, I know you didn't drink a tankard of beer before we hit record on that performance, but I felt the energy of that so clearly. What about the challenges of this piece? Trying to have it sound like it's improvisational. Mm. Because Brahms didn't write these down for many, many years. He just kept playing them and changing different things every time he played it. Mm. So... I need to make it sound like it's different each time I'm playing it. Let me in on the secrets of how do you actually make it sound improvised. Get technical with me. I have to add some rubato. I need to take time in certain places and add time in other places. That makes it sound just a little free. Mm -hmm. Usually you just follow the rhythm that's already written on the page. Right. And in this case, sometimes the rhythm on the page actually is kind of different than the way you actually play it. And that's been passed down through the generations with the traditions of this piece. Like, talk about that middle section. Right? How did you learn the way that section should go to capture that spirit? When I first started this piece... I played through it and thought, hmm, what am I trying to convey? What kind of dance do I think this piece is showing? Right. And that takes us back to the tankard of ale. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you feel you can bring improvisational freedom to other styles of music or other time periods of classical music? Yeah, definitely. But I think it's wise to do it in what you think the composer would be doing if they were playing the piece. Let's say Bach. Good example. How about Bach? There's certain things that people tend to find not as acceptable when you play Bach, like doing glissandos. In Bach's time, they had a lot more rules on what was acceptable and kind of a bit rebellious to put in your music. (laughs) Like Bach includes tritones, which were illegal at that time. And it's nice to kind of emphasize those to show how they're different than other composers. When you're performing, whether it's Brahms, Bach, or anyone else, how do you approach communicating to an audience? I kind of want to be able to share what the composer's feeling to myself and then share what I think the composer and myself should show the audience about the music that I'm playing. Mm -hmm. So for this piece... It's kind of just fun, and it should sound free, and it should sound like you're just enjoying this. So I'm not going to come up here and be all tense and worried about it. (laughs) Right, right. Do you ever have to choose between prioritizing what the composer has to say versus what you have to say? 
sometimes I feel like certain dynamic markings don't accurately represent what I want to convey. For example, if there's a phrase that says piano, but I think that it's pretty important, I might play it a little louder than that. For an accomplished young musician like yourself, I'm wondering what choices have you had to make in your life to get to this point? When I have schoolwork, I have to decide whether I'm going to spend that time at night focusing on my violin or if I want to focus more on my schoolwork because at school I'll get a lot of homework. It's better to practice violin earlier in the day so that you can really remember what you're practicing, but sometimes I'll have a big test I need to study for, so I'm wondering if I should practice still and then study for my test, or I should study a little later so I can prioritize practicing. And how do you go about making those tough choices? Well, sometimes I just decide to study because it's just really important for me to get a good grade on the subject, but sometimes I'll say, oh, well, I can study this in the morning on the way to school, so (laughs) I'll just practice now. Yeah, it's really learning at a very young age (laughs) how to manage your time and triage the many responsibilities that you have on your shoulders. It's not easy being a young musician. I appreciate how much effort goes in and the amount of work. Has there been a moment in your journey so far in music where you felt kind of discouraged? Yeah, I'd say so. Sometimes I feel like I'm not getting any better, so I wonder if I should just think about doing something else, but usually I just say things will get better. I just need to keep practicing. Yeah. For any young musicians like you listening right now, what would you have to say about how to find the balance between? I would say to just think about what you really enjoy doing. It's better to focus on something you love doing than try to just impress everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what a gift that you have to be able to play and express yourself. And thank you for sharing that gift with all of us. If your violin was a person, how would you describe that person? I would say that they can be a bit bossy because sometimes my G can be louder compared to all my other strings. They would also just be a lot of fun and be a happy person because my E string is quite bright and I like that. So it's a different combination, but I love my violins. It's great that you see it as a source of joy and that joy came through today. Yeah, thank you. Lorelai Schoenhard, 14 years old from St. Cloud, Minnesota. I have Isaiah Chirin joining me now in the studio. He is a 17-year-old oboist from Apple Valley, Minnesota, now living in Philadelphia, where he attends the Curtis Institute of Music. Isaiah, welcome to From the Top. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this piece we're going to perform together. Tell me the name and the composer. This piece is called Pranium, and it's by Rina Esmail. Tell me about how you found this music and why it's meaningful to you. Well, I've been following Rina and her career and her music for a very long time. Growing up, there weren't many people like me who were Indian and the classical music field because it's not necessarily something that's really encouraged amongst the community. And the work that she's doing to combine 
traditional Hindustani and Indian classical music with Western classical music was very inspiring to me. And when I first discovered her, she didn't really have any pieces for the oboe, mm. um, but she had a piece called Jula Jule, which was written for the violin. And it said that oboists could play it as well. So that was my first intro into her music. And then I discovered through the International Delbert Reed Society, they commissioned her to write a piece for one of their conferences. Right. And it was this piece, Pranayam. And a great mentor of mine, Toyin Spellman Diaz, premiered it. And I watched the live stream and I mm. really fell in love with the piece. So wow. Not just the first moment you heard it, but the first moment anyone heard it. You heard the premiere. Yes. So one of the joys of playing music by a living composer is that if you're lucky enough, you can get a chance to hear from them directly. And Rena is a great friend of From the Tops. And I know that you reached out to her and you heard back. Yeah, actually, after our first rehearsal, I sent her a mock recording and she replied with uh, a voice memo talking through notes. She also like sang through some parts. She has a beautiful voice. It was interesting because I sort of looked at it from a Western classical music perspective, you know, note by note, how mm -hmm. would this rhythm line with this? But when she sang it in the more Hindustani Indian classical style, it was much more free and improvisatory. The way that her voice sort of, it's almost like glissandos in a way. Like it's, mm, it's everything like is bending very, the notes yeah, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. So it's very interesting for me to hear that. I, I'm very grateful that she took the time to do that. Yeah, I mean, what an inspiring thing. And kudos to you for having the courage to just reach out to a living composer and say, here I am playing your piece. What do you think? Shout out to Rena. All of us here at From the Top love what she's doing, love her music. A true pioneer in the way she's married elements of Western classical music with the Hindustani tradition. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up listening to Indian classical music? I did. I listened to a lot of different things in the car with my grandparents, and my parents always loved Ravi Shankar. It was just something that was just part of my life. Talk about the piece specifically, Pranayam, that we're about to play. We're going to do three of the movements. What does Pranayam mean? It means harnessing of the life force. Mm -hmm. And each movement is based off of breathing patterns in yoga. So the first movement, Durg, is a three-part breath. The way Rina described it was it starts from lower in your body and it gradually gets higher. The second movement, Kapalbhati, is the skull shining breath. It's like these short exhalations and inhalations through the nose. Yeah, and then, it's quick sort of. Yeah, that kind of thing, right? exactly. <laughs> and then the fifth movement, uh, Ujjayi, is the victory breath or the ocean breath. And it's these long mm. sort of inhales and exhales. You could hear these breathing patterns and you can follow along with them as well. Yeah, um, in fact, cool. there's a note that Rena published to go along with the score, and I'm looking at it right now. She says, if you know these breath patterns, breathe along. And then there's an asterisk that says, it's not lost on me that the only person in the room who won't be able to follow the breath patterns is the oboist, <laughs> right, of yeah. course, because you need to breathe in a way that supports the sound production of the instrument. I do want to encourage all of those listening to really think about their breath as they listen to our performance of this piece. I think that's exactly what Rena was going for as she conceived the piece. Okay, Isaiah, if you're ready, let's take this from the top. This is Rena Esmail's Pranayam, three movements. Cool? Cool.
17-year-old oboist Isaiah Chirin from Apple Valley, Minnesota, performed three movements from Pranayam, a piece by composer Rina Esmail. I'm Peter Dugan, and I was at the piano. Isaiah, this is my first time playing this piece of music, and that journey of discovery just over the past few days has genuinely been such a treat for me. I want to thank oh, you for that. Thank you. <laughs> Talk about the different movements and how you think about breath for each of them. Yeah. One thing that's unique about the actual mechanics of breathing while playing the oboe mm -hmm. is that we inhale to play, but we also have to exhale because there's so much pressure buildup that we have too much air. So there's sometimes we have to exhale mm. on rest just so that we can inhale from something more fresh. Right. So that's definitely been a challenge. Playing after an exhale can feel different from playing in an inhale. So I have to plan out when I'm going to exhale and when I'm going to inhale. From an actual musical standpoint, uh, what I've been thinking about is how I can get this sense of breathing and breath through my phrasing. You can do that with vibrato, like leaning towards the climax of the phrase mm -hmm. and then coming away so that when people listen, they can go, <sighs> ah, you know? right. So that's sort of what I've been thinking about. And even within like the second movement where it's all these short, fast uh, inhale mm -hmm. and exhale, how I can get that phrasing. The long phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you did it beautifully. You said that Rena has only written a few pieces for the oboe. How does it feel? It feels great. It's written very well and, you know, in a very nice register of the instrument, mm -hmm. um, very resonant. So yeah, it's been a treat. And I have yet to work on the other two movements. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of like one of the movements, uh, Simha, which is the lion's breath, mm. um, utilizes like the very low register of the instrument. And it gives a very different kind of quality, brassy cool. quality. So um, yeah, it's, it's written very well. Great. Well, I noticed as you were getting set up today, you know, like any good double reed player, you had all your various reeds. <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit about life with reeds. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible, but we have to do it. Um, it's And you, you make your own. Yes, I make right? my own reeds. It starts from a piece of tube cane. Uh, it looks like a bamboo. And then we chop it, put it through a series of machines and tie it on a staple, scrape it, and then we can adjust it, you know, for various things. And yeah, it's yeah, a I mean, long... Yeah, I you're and... a woodworker, you're a, uh, an artisan, and <laughs> as you're building a reed, do you ever have this moment of like, this is going to be a good one? Do you ever know before you even put it onto the instrument? Yes, yeah. I, it's very rare, but like sometimes you just like get a nice piece of cane mm -hmm. and like you're scraping, you know, you don't get any thin spots anywhere. Like it, it like it's still pretty thick, but it responds well. And I'm like, yeah. That's, that's going to be a good one. The closest thing I've had to this is baking Christmas cookies <laughs> in the holidays with my family and feeling like I didn't screw it up. <laughs> Why carry so many of them? Each reed has a different personality or a different quality to them. So one reed that I play on for a Brahms symphony might not be fitting for Haydn or Mozart. Maybe the cane is too soft, maybe the cane is too hard, different kinds of sound, maybe one responds better. So I just keep a lot of different kinds mm -hmm. of reeds just so I can adjust it. Do you carve out a reed with the intention that this is going to be a more of a Brahms reed or more of a Mozart reed, or is that something you discover after the fact? I don't intentionally do it, but like sometimes I'm making a reed and I'm like, okay, this one is going to be really good for pranayam or for 
the orchestra piece that I'm working on. How long will a read like that be in your arsenal? It depends. It can last anywhere from two hours or I've made reads last for like a year. Wow. (laughs) That's when I'm really struggling is if I (laughs) make it last for a year. (laughs) (laughs) How do you say goodbye to a read that you've really loved and had great concerts on? Well, I will say if there's a read that's sort of stood out from the rest, I usually save it just so that when I'm in like a read ride, I can go back into my, I call it my archive case. Um, And I also have reads that like different players have given to me and I save those just so I can look at it. If I'm really struggling, I can soak them up and compare and see what I need to improve and get out of the rut with my own reads. So, Wow. I I really find it fascinating. (laughs) Do you have a relationship with the oboe then that sort of exists separately from all the read making? I try to, yeah. I think it's important to keep them separate because once I start fussing around on a read, then mm-hmm. I get distracted and I end up working on it you know, for two hours when I was supposed to be practicing, right? So mm. I make reads at home and then I practice at school. So I just keep them separate. Whatever yeah. read I have is what I practice on. Nice, so, yeah. nice. What would you say is the most sort of valuable or treasured read in your archive? Oh, <laughs> that's difficult. I did keep the read that I played my Curtis audition on, uh, which is mm. you know very special to me. Yeah. And it's kind of fun to look back also at like the older reads and see how much I've improved. You're studying now at Curtis Institute of Music in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. Tell me about what the shift has been like moving to Philly and how that works for a high school student. Yeah, um, it was a very big adjustment. My whole family moved there. My parents, I, I'm very thankful for them. They sold the house in Minnesota. And my mom moved with me to Philadelphia. Mm. If you're a young student, you have to live off campus with a parent. So, you know, we had to find a place in Philadelphia. And then I also had to figure out high school um, because I still wanted to get my high school diploma. So I do high school online on top of the stuff that I have to do at Curtis. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different lifestyle. I I grew up in the suburbs and now I'm in, Mm. you know, Center City. And I, I really like it. It's a very vibrant community, lots of music, cool people from so many different places. Also, because, you know, New York City is so close, I've gone to see a few performances at Carnegie Hall. One of the biggest highlight concerts in my life so far was when I saw the Berlin Phil play Mahler 7 Mm. at Carnegie Hall. Mm. That changed my whole perspective about orchestral music and playing because even though there was a conductor there, they were all playing chamber music. They were all connected. It was very inspiring to me. And also a lot of my greatest heroes on the oboe were also there. So what did you do differently or feel differently the next time you were in an orchestra rehearsal? I definitely try and make it more collaborative. Like I, you know, talk to my colleagues and say, how Mm. do we want to phrase this? Or how do you think this fits into the whole piece? And also I think as wind players, we tend to like stay within our own group in our own section. Mm -hmm. But especially if I sit like the principal chair, like try and branch out more, you know, make eye contact with like a principal string player and connect with them. What's it like playing in an orchestra of musicians that are mostly college aged? To remind our listeners, you're not in a pre-college program at Curtis. You are enrolled Mm -hmm. in the school. I think at first it was intimidating because everybody is so, so amazing. The first couple months I felt, you know, like, am I good enough to be here? But it got better. And 
I started to see myself improving little by little, you know, small things. And my teachers were always very supportive. So it's been great so far. Was it a hard choice to leave your peers and your friends here in Minnesota? You know, it was tough. I'm still very connected with friends and family here. So I didn't cut it off completely. Yeah. 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 Has there been a change that you've had to make adjusting to a new teacher? You know, kind of bring me into that world. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know um, that there's a, a very long legacy of great oboe playing at Curtis. It's the like epicenter of the American school of oboe playing. Um, mm. Before like 1920s, there wasn't really a clear American style of oboe playing. Mm. And there was a guy by the name of Marcel Tabuteau, and he came from the Paris Conservatoire. He combined the French style of playing with the German style of playing, specifically with the reeds, and he created the American school of oboe playing. And that's since been taught at Curtis. And then the students who studied under him then went off to other orchestras. And then that style spread mm. across America. So the difference between the German and the French style is what? Um, so the French style was very flexible. Mm. There was a, a very strong emphasis on phrasing, um, especially from the Paris Conservatoire with Ferdinand Gillet. And... The German style was more focused on sound. They had mm. a, a very warm, a sound with a lot of depth in it. Mm. And he wanted to combine the two, the flexibility and the depth and resonance. Mm. Yeah. And this was early 20th century? Yeah, 20th I mean, century. when Curtis first started, he was the oboe teacher. So like 1924. Ah, yeah. Right. Not a time when the idea of blending a German anything with a French anything <laughs> yeah. was a popular idea. Yeah. Those two styles were so diametrically opposed, you know, in almost every discipline. Um, so cool to think of this American style as one that is maybe finding the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. What would you say are the characteristics of the oboe that you love the most? If you've ever heard the Bacchanal, the oboe solo from mm -hmm. Samson and Delilah. You want to give us a little, <laughs> play a couple bars of it? Sure, I could. Yeah, beautiful. Remind us what we're hearing there. That's the Bacchanal from Samson and Delilah. Uh -huh. And that's definitely like the sort of sound that drew me to the oboe, that sort of exotic Arabian kind uh. of thing. Later on, when I started getting more and more into the oboe, I discovered this sort of vocal operatic quality that really resonated with me. And yeah, I always try and emulate a singer now, has your reed dried out too much to give me a little taste of something that really allows you to sing like an opera singer? Ooh. That is so beautiful. <laughs> That's the opening oboe solo from Fountains of Rome by Respighi. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I asked you to excerpt something that was an example of singing, cantabile, operatic style, you go to an Italian. Mm -hmm. Good man. <laughs> hey, Isaiah, thank you for being with us today. That performance was truly beautiful. Oh, I hope we get to you. play together again. 
Of course, yeah. I'm so honored to be here, so thank you. Isaiah Chirin, 17 years old, from Apple Valley, Minnesota, now living and studying in Philly, PA. Finally, we have a very special group gathered here in the Minnesota Public Radio studios. Four teenage boys and their acoustic guitars who look poised to begin playing. From the top listeners, you might want to temporarily relocate the furniture in the room because I suspect that some of you will be moved to dance. The McPhail Guitar Quartet. Teenagers from the Minneapolis area performed Tico Tico No Fuba by Zakina de Abreu, arranged for Guitar Quartet by Luke Levesque.
The McPhail Guitar Quartet, What a Performance of Tico Tico No Fuba by Zakina de Abreu, arranged for guitar quartet by Luke Levesque. We have here right now the members of this quartet. They are Soren Winnikoff, Arjuna Morgason, Lucas Murdoch, and Augie Ho Chen, all teenagers from the Minneapolis area. Welcome, you guys. That was incredible. What a fun performance. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. You play so well together. You really mesh as a quartet. Talk to me about the roles that each of you play in this ensemble, because I'm used to a string quartet when it's kind of very clearly defined. First violin's playing the tune, cello's holding down the bass line, but how does it work with the four of you? Talk to me about it, Soren. Yeah, so we all switch around parts for different pieces. So some days one person will be getting the melody and someone else will be getting the bass and then we'll swap it around for the next piece so everybody gets to try different things because all our guitars are the same and so we can all play different parts. But for this one, I am the melody and so I'm kind of carrying that tune so it all holds together and that's my role in this piece. And what are you doing, Arjuna? Um, I have guitar four or the bass part and I think my role is to maintain the tempo and sort of keep everybody together. And Lucas? Yeah, so I play kind of a background role. I think of myself almost as a, like a drummer in a jazz band. I'm trying to uh, set the mood and the feeling of the piece. Cool, and what about you, Augie? I'm kind of like a harmony to Soren, uh-huh. so like a under melody, but we kind of have like similar rhythms and stuff, so yeah. Yeah, sometimes you guys are like playing duets together almost. Yeah. Is this your preferred role for each of you? Like, for example, Arjuna, like, do you love playing the bass line, or do you kind of enjoy mixing it up um well it's the easiest so i do enjoy it but um (laughs) we've played a lot of other repertoire and i also enjoy playing all the other parts and experimenting with how i can sound with these other three yeah lucas you have a favorite role to play so generally in this quartet i tend to play the melody a lot Mm. Uh, but i do enjoy playing the kind of the background here because i'm also a jazz guitarist and it's a very similar role here playing the background as in if I were on my electric guitar. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of a rhythm guitar sort of vibe. Yeah, exactly. Um, Soren, you have a preferred role? Not at all. I, I like them all. Yeah. Like them all. Augie? Same, yeah. On like another piece that we're playing called Chacon, I'm the bass, uh-huh. but in this one I'm not, so. You all seem pretty confident, but if you had to say, what would be the biggest challenges of, of this piece? It's fast. That's a challenge already, and I think also syncing it all up because the parts all have a lot going on with them, and it's loud, and it's quick, and it's like got a very distinct rhythm, and if you don't get that rhythm, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Making sure we're all muting at the same times and we're all in that same groove, I think, is the hardest part about making this piece because if you don't have that, it doesn't make any sense together. Right. Lucas, how do you all practice your getting synced up and staying together yeah, and a lot of the other repertory play, there's a lot of counting, but I feel like in a piece of this style, you can't really be counting it with your brain. You have to be feeling it in your body. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I would say has been challenging with this piece is learning to feel it rather than count it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just building on to what Lucas said, I feel like me and Lucas kind of have more of the groove and the bass and what holds the piece, and Soren and Augie have more of a melody, so balancing those two halves of this piece and making them sound together was a challenge. Well, I think you all pulled it off. Mm-hmm. It was really great. Thank you. Augie, did you start on guitar? Is that your first instrument? No. I started on piano, but um, I started playing guitar shortly after. Why did you leave piano for guitar? Well, I still play the piano. I actually play both. 
Okay, Lucas, what about you? Did you start on guitar? No, so I actually started on the piano, but uh. my dad did play a lot of guitar for me as I was growing up, and we found that piano didn't really click. So after maybe six months, they ran into a guitar teacher, and I started guitar, and that worked much better for me. What about you, Arjuna? Relatively what Lucas said as well. I think my parents' original idea was for me to play piano, but I don't think at a young age I enjoyed it, and then one day... They just kind of put me in guitar lessons, and ever since, I've been really enjoying it. What about you, Sorm? I started on guitar. You could say I started on ukulele first, although that's quite Ooh. similar. And before that, I started on a cardboard violin that I played like a guitar. Uh, <laughs> but it's all been <laughs> guitar. Wow. I had the chance to play violin, but I turned it the other direction. And then that's when you knew. Yep. That's really cool. Uh, now I know how you all got to guitar. How do you then end up forming this ensemble of a guitar quartet? Arjuna? The first time that I met Augie, as Suzuki students at McPhail, um, we're all required to do a group class. And tell me a little bit about McPhail. It's the music school that we all attend. It's in downtown Minneapolis. Yeah, I believe it's the largest Suzuki school in the country. Mm. Awesome. might just be for guitar. Okay, so Arjuna and Augie, y'all met at McPhail. Yes, our teacher started a quartet that me and Augie were both a part of when we were young, and it was the first time that I'd played in an ensemble. So you are, in that sense, founding members of the sure. quartet. Yeah, technically. Well, then COVID happened, and then, like, the group class didn't happen anymore. Okay. And then during COVID, that's when I met Soren. So our teacher asked me and Soren to form a duet. But, like, I've known Lucas. I see him at recitals all the time because he used to play with a previous quartet. So it's sort of a small world, this yeah. mi- Minneapolis guitarist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so then you invited Soren. Yeah, but Arjuna wasn't there anymore because the group class was gone. During COVID, I kind of just he... played solo. Oh, yeah, okay. so then it was just me and Soren. And then two years ago... When COVID was added, dying down. Yeah, we, we added Arjuna back. So then it was a trio. Kind of a trio. And then uh, last year, Lucas came because yeah. his old quartet disbanded. So it's been a... a twisting, winding road, and now here you all are as a quartet. Lucas is the most recent member of the quartet. What was it like joining up with these guys? Alan told me, he said, I have a couple of guys, and then later I have three guys that are in a trio right now, and they'd like a fourth member. Would you be down to join? And I was, so here I am. Shout out to Alan Johnston, your teacher and the coach of this ensemble. From what I understand, you guys have actually toured as a group. Yes. So tell me about where you've gone and what it's been like. We spent around a week and a half in Germany and Luxembourg. Uh, We got to do a lot of performing together, but we also got to do some master classes. We got to meet up with another guitar group in Germany. It was a really great experience, but I feel like the most important part of all of that for us was getting to spend all that time together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you can really feel how tight-knit a group is outside of music, in their music. Yeah, definitely. Well... You guys, it's just really fun to get to hang out with you all, and what a great performance. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. The McPhail Guitar Quartet, teenagers from the Minneapolis area, Soren Winnikoff, Arjuna Murugesen, Lucas Murdick, and Augie Ho-Chen. It has been so fun to be here in the Twin Cities in the great state of Minnesota. Thank you to Minnesota Public Radio for hosting all of us today and to you, our listeners, for turning your radio on no matter where you are, cooking, on the road, under your desk at work, perhaps, to join this tenacious and joyful group of young musicians on From the Top. I'm your host, pianist Peter Dugan. Please join me next week and we'll take it from the top. This episode was recorded at the beautiful studios of Minnesota Public Radio with their fantastic engineer, Craig Thorson.
A special thank you to John Nichterlein for bringing together his Twin Cities community to support from the top. A heartfelt thank you to the Jack Kent Cook Foundation. They support our young musicians through the Jack Kent Cook Young Artist Award and with the Jack Kent Cook Young Scholars Program, provide pre-college scholarships for high-performing 7th grade students with financial need. Find them on the web at jkcf.org. From the Top is produced by Megan Swan and Abigail Desser. Sound design and music editing by John Escobar. With editing and mastering by Rodrigo Cuenca. Our production manager is Amanda Roth. From the Top's executive director is Gretchen Nielsen. From the Top is an independent nonprofit organization based in Boston. If you'd like to appear in our program, apply online at fromthetop.org. From the Top is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Massachusetts Cultural Council, a state agency connecting young people with the arts in schools and in their communities. Learn more at massculturalcouncil.org. From BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You know, while From the Top is distributed by NPR, it isn't owned by NPR. It's an independent nonprofit, and so we have to do our own fundraising to make it happen. Please consider making a donation to our ongoing entertainment and education programs at fromthetop.org. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit SAATVA.com slash NPR and save an additional $200.